pen got opened a little bit prematurely and so we are really starting at six hey katarina here hi victoria how are you good i'm gonna i'm i'm jumping down to the audience to put you in front goodbye oh wait i can't there we go thank you Thank you, Victoria, but it was not necessary, but that's yeah, yeah. for you. <laughs> that's the right thing to do. Oops. Hey, Jamie. Oops, sorry, I wasn't muted. <laughs> How are you, Victoria? Hiya. Good, thanks. Such a peaceful room. The yeah, can you silent. can you hear the ocean actually? Uh, yeah. Far away? I do now that you say what it is. I like that. That's a great background for a room. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I agree. We oh, still have some time. Oh, yeah, fine. it's perfect. Because remember when I was on the beach and it was just too noisy and nobody could hear anything? I like yours. I was enjoying that uh, UFO music room that both of you were in a couple of days ago. I popped into when I saw you both in there. It was such amazing sounds. So relaxing.
Hi, everyone. You hear me? Hi, Cliff. Hello, Dr. Cassidy. Oh, hi. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah, welcome. Thank you for coming. I put your slides yeah, up. Does you want to check? Everything is working. Thank you. Okay. Hello, Clifford. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. How are you doing today, Doctor? Um, Hope the weather's not been too hot for you where you are. It's been a, everybody's been getting the heat today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been hot here too, actually. I guess I was wondering if you hear the air conditioner going, but hopefully not too bad. Well, you've got the air conditioning with you, and then Katerina, when she unmutes, she will hear a little bit of the, the, the ocean. Can the I make everyone so. jealous? It's the last day I'm here. I'll drive home back tomorrow. Where it's are actually you? chilly here by the ocean. <laughs> and the city is crazy hot, but I'm in Southampton and on Long Island. Okay. Having dinner by the beach. So nice. It's like so chilly. My kids are complaining that it's a little bit cold. So. Okay. Well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's almost like a humble brag, Katarina. I'm eating by the beach, but it's a little bit cold. <laughs> 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 yeah, sorry, but tomorrow even at night and the next days I'll be really suffering like everyone else. So. Sorry, I was just saying, I, I opened the slides, I think they look okay. Yeah, perfect. Um, I hope you're um, enjoying your summer. I don't know if um, you're doing something fun during the summer, but yeah, well, I'm going away uh, in a few, three or four days. I'm from the west coast of Canada originally. My family's there, so I'll be leaving on Saturday for a couple of weeks. I'll be by the ocean there. Okay, we should have done the room then so you could brag while I'm in the city. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to get an impression with only audio, you know, you don't get the full picture, but. Well, it's kind of impressive how a personal, these, like, you know, usually there's not scientific rooms. Like, usually it's more kind of discussion rooms and. Mm -hmm. kind of personal sharing how much people share because it's just voice and they feel like i think people feel more comfortable when they are not on video like yeah so people share a lot here don't you think victoria on this app like, yeah i do i just shared a photo of where i'm working these days because clifford you were saying audio only so here's here's some capability to have a little okay. bit, another layer. So it's a river and some Canada geese are there. Jamie, it's a photo of um, side view of a river with a little bit of the bank and then some trees behind and some Canada geese are on it. It's where I go during my break and take a walk. That's so lovely. Mm, it is. 
and the current the Canada geese are they uh, are they friendly or do they do they like come and honk at you if you get too close? Well, I really give them their space. So you know, I don't know. They could, but I I always figure they got here first. So I don't judge. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm. I don't know. I'm sure if I if I approach them, they might want to do something like bite, maybe. But I've never seen them chasing anyone. They just That's make good. some noise and and do some fancy formations in the sky. And they probably came from much further away than us, right? As yeah. Could, are these the ones that like fly across continents and stuff? They Those are, are amazing. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's amazing when you hear them overhead honking too. You know, because you can hear them approaching and then and then hear them leaving. It's it's pretty exciting. Big V formations up there. We see a lot of them around here. I don't know where are you right now. Um, I'm in Canada, so I'm in Ottawa, oh, which is you know. okay. Maybe we've seen yeah. the same ones. Yeah, they come through spend a lot of time and fly off in the V formations. Every winter they fly south. They come over here to my house. <laughs> hey, Sosi Rahim. Hello. Hi, Katerina. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Victoria. We meet again, Victoria. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Hi, Clifford. How are you? Hi, good. Welcome. Thank you. Sorry, uh, Clifford, we're just sharing the rooms just now and uh, setting everything up. So, but thank you very much for being here. I'm actually quite looking forward to your talk. Um, incredibly fascinating topic that you've been working on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have lots of time to dig into it and uh, looking forward to sharing. Do we usually start at, right at the top of the hour? Yeah, we'll stop at the start of the hour, yeah. Right. Yeah, the room just kind of accidentally got opened early, about 20 minutes early. Okay. Yeah, but um, yeah, you can just relax for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then hopefully relax for the rest of the room, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There we go, that's been shared there and we have the presentation up. There we go.
and welcome everybody to Science Society. We are very, very glad you can join us. It's going to be a, an amazing talk, so hope you're all ready. Katarina, have you been swimming in the ocean? Yes, definitely. I love the water and swimming and everything about it. As soon as I'm by the ocean, I'm fine. Like, you know, could be the worst thing. That's why, I don't know, not living close to the oceans. When, you know, in Porto or you know, whenever I'm, I'm really close to the ocean, stressful day, two minutes by the ocean, I'm okay. <laughs> like nothing can, nothing yeah. really it's, bad. But. It takes all the stress away and it's rejuvenating. Oh, it is? Oh, perfect. Well, the sun, the intense sun, probably not. But. Are you tanning and uh, all the, the sun, Katerina? I just am outside in the water. There's no, not like that I'm laying there and tanning on purpose. It's just, you know, you wear sunscreen, but you're still. Right. Golden brown. Yeah. Just lovely. Yeah. I used to like um, the beach in New York. Like, I. I never thought before I lived there that that was an option, but I actually really enjoy going to like a Jacob Rees beach or something and swimming. Yeah, it's uh yeah, we have beach in Brooklyn, so uh, Rockaway Beach. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I like it. Mm -hmm. Just the pain to get there, like the traffic is mostly annoying. The ferry yeah. hour from where we live, like Williamsburg has a ferry down. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I used um, to just take the A train. Yeah, yeah, that's... What's the temperature of your water? Here, it's relatively warm. So it's warmer than in Porto. In Porto, where I'm from, from Portugal, it's around 17 degrees Celsius, the water always. Maybe colder in the winter. So it's always really cold. Like, it hurts the bones of your feet <laughs> but i really like it when it's really hot and really cold water so it gets warmer it doesn't hurt your bones but it's not warm so but i like it it's like it gets too warm i don't know it's not refreshing it doesn't feel like the ocean i don't know it's, i don't like it i'm weird yeah, i, I was it. at stuff in the Mediterranean I really didn't like it that much it was weird like what the heck it's hot outside you don't really cool down in the water Gulfside Florida is almost bath water this time of year <laughs> hey Serena how you doing hello hi everyone hey Serena awesome you're back in the back in here today thanks for to you yeah well, I, the topic was quite a draw. Mm -hmm. 
know, I've been so busy lately, but I'm trying to come back. Glad you're here. Very, very glad to hear you back, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm a little concerned about you and the gators and <laughs> how close you let them get to you. <laughs> See my <laughs> new handbag. <laughs> No, I think Marco, I haven't seen Marco in a while. They may have taken him. Oh, that's sad. I still keep a lookout. I think we can slowly start. Um, and um, yeah, with the introduction and everything, and then we'll go from there. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. And of course, a special thanks to Cliff, um, Dr. Cassidy. Uh, for coming here and, um, you know, sharing your time and your amazing research with us. Um, before we start, let me um, introduce you a little bit uh, to the audience and then uh, Victoria will ask you a couple of um, interview questions and then um, it's uh, time for your uh, amazing presentation because I had the chance to look at it. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Clifford Cassidy is a scientist at the Royal um, Institute of Mental Health Research, which is affiliated with the University of Ottawa. And he received his Bachelor in Physiology um, and Master in Neuroscience and PhD in Psychiatric Research from the McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And then he did his uh, postdoc um, on a fellowship in um, brain imaging at Columbia University in New York City. And um, he uh, continued um, his neuroimaging work, schizophrenia, and has expanded his research scope to the study of PTSD and other neuropsychiatric disorders conditions and um, he um, is currently also doing research uh, within uh, with the military mental health unit and um, he uses different and really interesting neuroimaging methods to understand brain mechanisms of um, different pathologies in the, in the brain mostly um, so Thank you so much uh, for being here. And yeah, as I said, um, Victoria will ask you a couple of questions and we'll take it from there. Thank you. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Katarina. And yes, Clifford Science Society is so happy to welcome you. And it has been fascinating to read about the breadth of your research and we can't wait to hear your discussion. So to carry us into your discussion tonight, I've just got a few questions to help us get to know you a bit and to carry us into your talk. So if you can reflect on your experience, maybe in childhood or any time in your life that you can recall when you first realized a strong connection or attraction to science or scientific exploration, then perhaps you can tell us about that. I mean, yeah, I don't know that I had like a eureka moment or something. I, I, I think I was kind of an average child in terms of, um, you know, earlier in my schooling. But then at some point in high school, I kind of uh, just got really interested in science and math. 
and you know I wasn't so sociable I kind of felt like in a bit of a bubble and I uh, just got you know it felt kind of reassuring like a world that you could control or understand like an objective world with clear rules and um, so that was yeah kind of a comforting thing for me and I just got really interested in it and um, so it was kind of nice too because then that gave me a kind of a springboard to get out of my town and explore the world and um, so I went to McGill University in Montreal which was on the other side of the country um, when I was 18 years old and did started my studies there and then that kind of got my life going too and then I had a social life again and um, so you know I like the idea of science being a also a kind of portal to meeting people in the community and being, uh, you know, engaging with other like-minded people. Um, yeah. So I didn't know at first if I wanted to do neuroscience. Like, I, you know, I was always interested in the brain. I remember even at a young age um, being curious about that. But um, then I was started out in like the engineering stream for uh, the first uh, year of university, and then, and then I decided to try neuroscience. Um, I was always, you know, curious about the brain and how our experiences can be, um, you know, our reality is kind of shaped by whatever chemical reactions happening inside your brain. Um, so I was interested in, you know, psychiatric conditions that have such an change on people, on your mood and your, you know, reality, sense of reality. And so I guess that's what got me interested in schizophrenia. I was also interested in um, substance use disorders. And yeah, that's how I started. Thank you for that description. It's fascinating to hear also that, that you were so interested in the brain as a child and then you went, you continued, continued that, um, that search into what you were interested in. So can you then carry us from, from that point where you left off up to where you are today with your current research? Yeah, so. Yeah, stops along the way. Thank right. You. Yeah, it's a good point that neuroscience was just the beginning of, you know, finding your path. So that's still a very broad path. And I started out in doing animal research and basic neuroscience for my master's, um, which I liked. But um, I felt like I was also wanted to understand the human side of uh, psychiatric conditions, for instance. Like I, for much of my uh, training, I was looking, studying schizophrenia. And I felt like I didn't actually know the kind of lived experience of people with a disorder. And um, so I then for my PhD, I was based in a clinic for people with first episode psychosis, um, which I found really gratifying to actually work with the patients and to get to know them and to understand how the kind of illness interacted with their own personal selves. And uh, so, you know, um, but then I felt like I wanted to get a little bit back into the neuroscience side because that situation was more like a clinical research kind of environment, which was very informative and educational. But um, so for my postdoc, I think I found a pretty good compromise where I was doing kind of human neuroscience work with um, learning about brain imaging, also mostly in schizophrenia. Um, and um, yeah, so I kind of got back into more hardcore neuroscience, but could apply my understanding of the illness from, you know, having worked with patients too. Um, and then, so 
then when I got my own independent position here in Ottawa, um, something happened where towards the end of my postdoc, we started working on this one method that I'm going to talk a lot about today, this neuromelanin sensitive MRI. And so then I went from having a common thread of my research being a disorder, schizophrenia, to having the common thread being more the method that I was using with this neuromelanin imaging, and then applying that to many different disorders, including neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, but also psychiatric disorders. Um, and that's been kind of interesting because when you have expertise in a method, it kind of opens up a lot of collaborations because other people want to, you know, maybe use it also and you can help them. And um, so, yeah, that's been neat to collaborate with people around the world who are trying to apply this method in different contexts and different disorders and so forth. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting that you had mentioned that science is a portal to meeting people and bringing us together into community because that's really a goal with us here in Science Society to bring science, love of science and interest in science to as many people as possible. So thank you for being part of, of our goal and doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of scientists feel the same way. And, you know, it's great when you get a chance to share your results with people who are interested. So interested. <laughs> um, and you'll see because so at this point, you're welcome to deliver your talk. And then at the end, we can have your Q&A if you'd like or if you prefer um, the questions to drive your talk, your conversation. That's fine, too. Um, and we are here to moderate the room. And also sometimes people write questions in the room chat, which we can also share with you. So you don't need to mm -hmm. worry about that at all. And um, I feel like I was gonna just answer one other thing that you said, but um, yeah, perhaps not, or, or you're here. I know where you are. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, okay. All right, yeah, so yeah, we've got your talk pinned up at the top so you can refer to that at any time. And so, yeah, um, yeah thank you so much and please enjoy your talk. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm happy if you got, if anyone wants to interrupt me as we go, um, you know, I, I don't mind. And we can also have some extra questions at the end. I'm pretty flexible. Um, so I'll, I'll start the talk, but I, I'll try to keep on track with telling the slide numbers because I'm a bit, don't want to get mixed up and lost, but if people, I'm sure I'll forget. Um, so feel free to interrupt me if you get lost with where I'm at. Um, so yeah, thanks again for inviting me. And um, I'm going to talk about uh, this paper that I recently published called Association of Locus Cerullius Integrity with Brack Stage and Neuropsychiatric Symptom Severity in Alzheimer's Disease. Um, but I won't uh, launch right into the paper. I'll give a fair bit of background because kind of to give a perspective of where I'm coming from and how I got to this particular study and where this work is maybe leading. Um, so um, I'm kind of taking the perspective more about um, studying catecholamine uh, neuromodulators, which a lot of my work has been uh, focused on recently. So Alzheimer's disease was one application where those um, brain systems are affected, especially the norepinephrine, like the locus ceruleus norepinephrine system. Um, but then we've also been looking at the dopamine system. So, you know, those uh, two systems are somewhat related, but certainly the, the neurotransmitters themselves are closely related. And I'll explain why why we end up looking at the two of them sometimes um, with this, this type of uh, imaging method we're using. 
So to start with the overview, so I'll talk um, for a while about the background of um, this imaging method we're using. So it's called neuromelanin-sensitive MRI. And um, so I'll explain a bit what neuromelanin is and the biology of that, and then um, how, how we use this imaging method that's related to neuromelanin. Um, and then we will go into how um, some validation work, like how we kind of tried to establish this method as um, a real method to look either at neuromelanin um, or at catecholamine system function. So, which would be kind of cool because usually if you want to understand those kind of brain systems, you have to do PET imaging, which is a great method, but has a lot of limitations and it's not always uh, possible to use it in a lot of contexts. So we were excited to try to do something with MRI that could tell some kind of similar information. And then once we've gone through all that, I'll move on to the actual results of the study that we want to talk about today about uh, using the method in Alzheimer's disease to examine uh, degeneration of the locus ceruleus in that condition. So I'll start with the background. So why are we talking about catecholamines? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'll um, have to give a little background here. So catecholamines, usually we think of dopamine and norepinephrine. And um, so they're very closely related chemically. Um, and we care about them because, you know, they're, these systems are such important neuromodulators that are involved in so many brain functions. Um, in the context of what we're talking about today, it's really important to know that these systems are vulnerable to neurodegeneration. And we'll get into what reasons that may be, uh, why that may be the case. Um, a lot of psychiatric patients target these systems, like the dopamine system, norepinephrine system. Um, and yeah, they're involved in really key brain functions, like cognition, memory, arousal, especially the locus ceruleus, an autonomic function. Um, and as I said, that it's been hard to, you know, in many contexts to measure, directly measure the function of these systems in humans in vivo. So often people are using PET imaging, um, but I'll introduce this uh, neuromelanin sensitive MRI that um, we've been studying so much. And that is a way to, that targets both the dopamine system and the norepinephrine system and um, allows us to uh, assay the function of the and the integrity of those systems. So a little bit of background about neuromelanin and catecholamines. So now I'm on slide five. Um, so here we see the uh, nerve terminal of a, we'll talk about the dopamine system for now. The same more or less should apply for the norepinephrine system. So if we imagine the dopamine system nerve terminal, there's a, a vesicle that has dopamine in it, and then um, the dopamine is, you know, the vesicle releases it into the synaptic cleft, and then the transporters take the dopamine back up into the cytosol of the nerve terminal, then it goes back in the vesicle. So there's kind of cycling around. But the part in that cycle that matters for us right now is when the dopamine is free floating in the cytosol. So when it's in there, it's kind of a, a risky place for it to be because Dopamine and catecholamines in general are uh, dangerous species. They're um, put oxidative stress on the cell 
and they don't they shouldn't be floating around at high concentration for a long time so the cell does a lot of work to mop them up they get sucked back up into the vesicles but if there's a lot of them floating around some of them will get turned into neuromelanin so that isn't kind of an oxidative process um, and then as you see from the slide before slide four neuromelanin is very closely chemically related to dopamine and norepinephrine so that neuromelanin it um, accumulates in these granules and then those granules go into the cell body and they just build up over the lifespan and they never go away so um, it's kind of like maybe it's kind of like garbage but it serves a function also and um, the only way they'll ever go away is if the cells die and then this the neuromelanin can be cleared by microglia um, so basically as people age their um, catecholamine neuron cell bodies accumulate more and more of these neuromelan or, uh, neuromelanin gradules. So that's what you can see from this uh, scatter plot here that people who died at different ages, when they tested the amount of neuromelanin in their, uh, in their uh, neurons, that, that increased gradually over the lifespan. So that's by our colleagues in Italy who helped us with some of the work we're going to show later. So the only way, and you see the people with Parkinson's disease who've had um, loss of uh, death of the, some of their dopamine neurons, then you see the neuromelanin levels are much lower. That's on the next slide, six. So that's interesting, and it kind of shows how neuromelanin could be a proxy of um, integrity of cell bodies in, um, for catecholamine systems, but then for us, when we started this work, especially we were thinking more about psychiatry and conditions that aren't um, having neurodegeneration necessarily. Um, but we thought that even in the absence of neurodegeneration, the amount of neuromelanin could be telling us something. So there was work that showed that if you flood cells with really high levels of catecholamines, the, they will produce more neuromelanin. That was just uh, work in, in the dish and in, in vitro. Um, so we, you know, because we were studying schizophrenia, where it's well known that there's increased turnover of dopamine and increased presynaptic uh, dopamine levels, we, you know, had a strong hypothesis that that could lead to increased um, accumulation of neuromelanin in the cell bodies. And there was a couple of small studies that suggested that might be the case. So, so based on this, you know, neuromelanin levels could vary based as a function of dopamine tone kind of over the long term because you know it's something that would change only very slowly right that the neuromelanin is very stable but gradually increasing and accumulating so if there's a sustained increase in tone that may lead to a gradual increased level of neuromelanin um, and the other way that the neuromelanin levels could vary was if this dopamine cells die so um, people, this idea of imaging neuromelanin um, started about 15 years ago um, by a group in Japan, and um, so they noticed that there's a special um, type of MRI sequence that could show a high contrast in the same area of the brain where neuromelanin is present. I forgot to say that neuromelanin is a black pigment, and that's what gives the name of the substantia nigra. Is nigra because it has this pigment in it that you can see with the naked eye 
and also the locus ceruleus, it has the same pigment, but it's more diffuse, so it looks blue instead of black. That's what ceruleus means, blue. Um, Quick question. Yeah. Uh, is the neuromelanin vesicles, are they uh, distributed in any particular region within the cell, or, or do they just sort yeah, of... Yeah, they're just in the cell body. So that's hmm. why, you know, it could be that there's some getting transported in the axons or dendrites, but... Yeah, the vast majority would, would be in the cell body. Okay. And there, there's probably low levels of neuromelanin throughout the brain, but it's very minimal. And then the, the high concentration is in only those two places in the brain. And that's why you can see the, the pigment. So, so yeah, these um, early work showed that both of those regions, the substantia nigra and the locus ceruleus, had a high contrast that was in the exact location of those two structures where the neuromelanin was pre present. So they called it neuromelanin MRI, and um, there's still debate the extent to which neuromelanin contributes to the signal. Um, so that would be a discussion we could have. There's some camps who who debate how whether other factors are more um, contributing more to the signal. I mean, it's the case in all MRI measures that you know, we want to uh, use the, the, the signal we're measuring as a proxy of some brain process, but it's probably impacted by many things. Um, anyways, so we could talk about the physics of it later. But um, <clears throat> So most of the initial applications of this imaging were in Parkinson's disease, and um, there's been many, many studies always showing a profound effect that people with Parkinson's disease have less of this bright signal in the substantia nigra, which presumably is related to the loss of their dopamine neurons. And so, yeah, at this point, if I go to slide 12, just quickly showing a meta-analysis that all the studies show a strong effect and, you know, it's very consistent that um, it's a good method, for instance, in Parkinson's disease to, um, as a kind of a biomarker of the illness and the process that's really a core process of the illness, the death of the dopamine neurons. So then on slide 13, I have uh, shown also in Alzheimer's disease that other, other groups have shown, similar to the study I'm going to present, that there's loss of the signal there, likely related to degeneration of the locus ceruleus, which is known to happen in Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, that's in the context of today's talk, almost that's all I had to say. Like, this, this is a measure of neurodegeneration. But I feel like I, I wanted to kind of give a bit of a broader background um, about how we could also use the, me the measure to look at the function of these systems, even in non-neurodegenerative conditions, because I think it kind of informs how we interpret the results we have in Alzheimer's. And anyways, so I'm going to also talk about the work we've done in non-neurodegenerative conditions um, and how we've looked at the signal there. And it presents, you know, that's a great asset that we can use it in different contexts, but it has a bit of a caveat also that to keep in mind when you use it in neurodegenerative conditions, it may not be just a marker of neuro neurodegeneration. Like you can't necessarily separate the impact of neurodegeneration on the signal from the impact of other factors that impact neuromelanin levels um, or other factors to just in, impact the signal one way or another, even if it's not related to neuromelanin. So um, 
we're going to talk about that. So how we've used, now we're back to the overview slide, neuromelanin sensitive MRI as a measure of catecholamine system function. So I'll talk about it in terms of the dopamine system at this for this part of the talk. I'll kind of touch on this topic at the end, how we've considered the norepinephrine system also. Um, but anyways, for now, just the dopamine system. So the first question we addressed was whether in fact this is neuromelanin sensitive um, MRI. What it, you know, it's called that, but is it in fact true to the name? So we worked from on these um, post-mortem uh, experiment where we had small uh, half midbrain pieces from uh, post-mortem tissue and we scanned these using the same sequence we used, the neuromelanin MRI sequence, um, and then we dissected them on a grid. So we made this little 3D printed uh, dish with a grid insert and then that way we could register the, the images from the MRI with the chemical measures from the dissections. So our objective was to see if the grid sections where there was higher signal also had higher neuromelanin content. So on the far right on slide 18, you see a, a representative specimen um, and on the y-axis is the concentration of neuromelanin that was measured um, using spectrophotometry from the dissected sample. On the x-axis you see the signal that was measured with this neuromelanin sequence and you see that this, the grid sections that had higher uh, neuromelanin content had higher signal, as we expected. The, the scatter on the left is just combining all the uh, seven specimens together. Um, and so you see that, indeed, that the neuromelanin concentration is correlated to the neuromelanin signal. So it argues in favor that neuromelanin is, is impacting the signal. Um, so then... Moving on from that question to whether the bigger question of whether this is telling us something about the function of catecholamine systems, even when there's no degeneration happening. So um, for that work, obviously, we're working in vivo. So I'm going to talk about our methods to look at the substantia nigra in, in living people. So um, a lot of the early work in Parkinson's disease had simply done um, a, a very simple analysis approach where you just work on the raw image and draw a circle around the bright part, which you assume is the substantia nigra, and you look at the contrast there relative to the, or, or the signal there relative to the signal in a nearby reference region where there's no neuromelanin, which is, I'm not showing here, but um, it's the white mitre tract right beside the substantia nigra, the cruz cerebri. Um, so you look at the contrast between those two things. But the limitation of that approach is, well, there's a couple, but the main one is that you're, you're not able to look at subregions within the substantia nigra. Um, and it, it may be important to do so because even though the substantia nigra or the locus ceruleus also, even though they're very small structures, that doesn't necessarily mean they're homogeneous. And for instance, we know the dopamine system has uh, different um, branches to it. There's a limbic dopamine system, a motor dopamine system, and... Uh, a cognitive one, like or associative, um, and those are have some you know anatomical uh, specificity. So we thought it was important to be able to break up this structure in greater anatomical detail. So we did what we call voxel-wise analysis, where we could look at all the different um, individual uh, voxels within the substantia nigra. So to do that, we had to go to standardized space. Um, so we registered everybody's brain 
the neuromelanin image, as you can see in the slide 20, there's a red band there. That's the neuromelanin image overlaid on a standard anatomical image. So it's not a full brain scan. It just is a, a smaller um, field of view that covers the midbrain and the pons, which is where the nigra and the, and the locus ceruleus are. So we brought that neuromelanin scan into standardized space, and then we mask out where the substantia nigra is. You see the red um, in the intensity normalization. It has a red mask where the reference region is, where there's no neuromelanin. And then we create this kind of standardized space template of the substantia nigra here on the next slide 21. Um, so you can see that yellow mask is the substantia nigra and the pink mask nearby is the reference region. And then we can look at every one of those little squares inside of it and do an analysis on each square individually. Um, so one of the first things I'll show on slide 22, uh, one of the most basic things we understand if if neuromelanin is really related to this um, neuromelanin imaging, we would have a strong hypothesis that the signal should increase over the lifespan because we saw that with the postmortem tissue that the neuromelanin levels increase over the lifespan. Um, and we found that indeed that's the case, that um, if you see here this red mask over the nigra is the red voxels where we saw significant increased signal over time. But it was interesting, we saw it if we span the whole lifespan like we are here, also, there's an, a part of the nigra that starts to go down in signal with age, and that's on the periphery of the structure, which would suggest that the structure is shrinking a little bit. So the middle is getting brighter. It's maybe shrinking in size a little bit as people age, maybe due to some degeneration as part of healthy aging. So um, if we do this as a scatter plot, again, on slide 23, we see that in this one large study of people from age 20 to 85 or 86, we see that you know the signals increasing in those red voxels. In another smaller study just on younger people, um, we see that it's increasing even more steeply at younger ages. Um, and there's no voxels there that are decreasing with age. So it, that seems to be happening only in later life, that, that maybe the nigra is shrinking like that. So this is just a small taste of another study that's going on now um, in healthy children and, and adults. So especially we're interested in the children to understand how the dopamine system is developing in healthy kids, um, because it's something that's never really been able to be studied um, directly in children. So a lot of the knowledge we have about the dopamine system's development is from animal research. Um, you can't really do pet imaging in youth. So we're pretty excited about this study and we might be applying it um, method also to um, kids with ADHD, for instance. Hopefully that study will start soon. So that's a sidetrack, but um, the other thing we wanted to do is a, maybe the most important validation that the method is relevant as a measure of function of catecholamine systems was to um, correlate the signal in the substantia nigra to kind of like a gold standard measure of dopamine function, which is from PET imaging. So the group that I was working with when we did this work at Columbia, uh, we're experts in PET imaging, especially dopamine PET imaging, um, and schizophrenia as well. Um, and so we were using a measure, uh, using a tracer, so now we're on to slide 25, um, a dopamine radio tracer called raclopride that binds the do dopamine D2 receptor. Um, and if you um, scan someone following injection with that tracer before and then you scan them again after um, injection with amphetamine, which causes great amount of dopamine release. 
you can see the displacement of the tracer by dopamine or by amphetamine, sorry, that um, would give kind of a proxy measure or yeah, by the dopamine that was, you know, released from the amphetamine. So that gives a proxy measure of dopamine release capacity. So it's sort of like how much um, presynaptic stores of dopamine were there. So we had a hypothesis that people with who tend to have higher dopamine release capacity, maybe if that was sustained like a trait-like way over their lifespan, that might lead to increased neuromelanin accumulation, and we would see brighter signal in the substantia nigra in those people. So that's what we found. We found a cluster, these green voxels on slide 25, that were uh, had higher signal in the people with higher dopamine release capacity. So that kind of suggested this measure could be um, capturing something about dopamine system function, which is pretty exciting because then it can be used outside of just neurodegenerative context. So the next step from that was to consider how the signal might be affected in a condition where we know there is um, a change in dopamine function, in presynaptic dopamine function, which was psychosis. So we know that people with psychosis have elevated um, dopamine system function, um, elevated dopamine synthesis, elevated dopamine release. Um, and so we tested that in our um, study with neuromelanin MRI as well. And we found that um, patients with schizophrenia and also uh, patients at risk for psychosis, both of them had um, increased uh, neuromelanin MRI signal that was correlated to the severity of their psychotic symptoms or subthreshold psychotic symptoms in the case of people at risk. Um, and we found that both of those clusters of, within the substantia nigra where there was a relationship to psychosis were kind of um, set, clustered on the ventral substantia nigra, which is um, the part of it that's supposedly uh, connected to the associative striatum, which is the part of the striatum where there's elevated dopamine release in schizophrenia. So that was pretty cool. Um, we have some, our colleagues are working now on using this as a marker of um, predicting treatment response in schizophrenia. We have some, they've shown that, um, hasn't been published, but that this could, this is predicting treatment response, which is exciting because a lot of patients with schizophrenia don't respond to the first line treatments and then they have to use a special drug called clozapine, which, you know, can be challenging to use and isn't offered um, always until late in the illness process. So if you could know who needs it sooner, that would be great, especially with a method like this imaging, which is, you know, pretty practical to um, administer in a clinical setting even. So that um, summar summarizes kind of where we were at with using the method. Um, so we, we had a, a brief introduction to how it could be used in the context of neurodegenerative conditions, but it can also be used in the absence of neurodegeneration um, since the, the signal correlates to neuromelanin concentration, increases with age, correlates to dopamine release capacity, and is elevated in psychosis, um, where we know there's elevated dopamine function. So, you know, I, I think that's all worthwhile to keep in mind when we're looking at using it in Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we know that it, it should capture degeneration um, of the locus ceruleus there but it may also be sensitive to other things that are happening in Alzheimer's disease. So I'm going to start the talk about um, the work we've done in Alzheimer's now. 
so now I'm on to slide 30. So now enough about dopamine, we can talk about the locus ceruleus norepinephrine system. Um, so presumably things are similar in terms of imaging this system as they were imaging the dopamine system with noromelanin sensitive MRI. Um, but to backtrack to, to talk about the biology of the locus ceruleus um, and its uh, impact in Alzheimer's. So locus ceruleus is a very small structure. Um, it's kind of rod shaped and it projects very widely throughout the brain um, and also down to the spinal cord. It's, uh, you know, this neuropinephrine neuromodulator is very important for many functions, including arousal and memory um, and um, autonomic system function also, um, sensory function, motor function, like it has a lot of roles. So um, in, the, in Alzheimer's disease, there's a few reasons why this is a, a particular target of interest. So the locus ceruleus is, is kind of unique in Alzheimer's because it accumulates this tau protein um, before any other brain region. So why that is, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to understand that better, but it's exciting to think that this could, um, you know, this structure could be a, one of the early players that kind of triggers the cascade of events that leads to Alzheimer's. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, later in the illness, the LC degenerates. It, um, and then as it's degenerating, there's kind of con compensatory changes so that even though the, the cells are dying, the norepinephrine cells, the remaining cells, there's they show some aspects of kind of hyper functioning. So maybe they're kind of even potentially overcompensating sometimes and causing other problems. So I'll just briefly touch on a, a few of those things. So in terms of the early tau accumulation, um, it was, you know, the, there was a kind of idea about the development of Alzheimer's into different stages, which they call BRAC stages. So that's based on the spread of tau throughout the brain, this tau protein. Um, and it was after the BRAC um, developed the stages, they had stage one, two, three, four, five, six, um, based on the spread of tau. Shortly after they realized they needed to have also a stage zero, which is when tau is only present in the locus ceruleus. And that can be seen even in the 20s and 30s. Um, so when people are between, you know, second and third decade of life, there's already some tau and some and some people in the locus ceruleus. And that tau, you know, accumulates more as the illness spreads. How important it is, we don't know, but, you know, people theorize that could be a, a source of tau that, you know, spreads it throughout the whole cortex eventually um, because the certainly the locus ceruleus projects throughout the whole cortex. So then the question about why the locus ceruleus is vulnerable to degeneration, um, there's different ideas about it. Um, it there's perhaps many reasons. Um, the locus ceruleus is close to the, the fourth ventricle and to blood vessels, which you know exposes it to cytokines and toxins. Um, I think Another special thing about these cells is they have these huge axonal arbors um, and very narrow axons, I think, too, maybe. Um, 
so it's kind of a, a difficult, you know, it's a lot of work for the cell to maintain that huge um, axonal arbor. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that these neurotransmitters they're using, the catecholamines and norepinephrine, for instance, um, you know, causes oxidative stress on the cell, and that leads to some kind of cascades that can cause damage to cells. And, you know, neuromelanin is part of that process of trying to um, protect against oxidative stress, but then even though it's protective in certain situations, it can kind of get reversed and become harmful. You know, if, if neuromelanin, for instance, is released from those granules, it's supposed to be protected in. So, you know, it's sort of like mopping up the bad stuff, but then if there's a situation where it gets released, then that bad stuff is gonna cause damage. Um, and then just briefly to touch on how the locus realis uh, neuropinephrine system may change in response to the damage or the death of cells. There's evidence of a number of different changes. For instance, elevated synthesis of norepinephrine in the remaining cells, elevated receptor expression of norepinephrine receptors, um, and increased um, sprouting of nerve terminals also. So there's a lot of, you know, it's kind of hard to keep track of all these changes. So there's the tau accumulates in the locus realis, then eventually the cells start dying, then the remaining cells have these other changes. So a lot of different processes are happening um, and it could be hard to disentangle them all. Um, so in terms of our study, one aspect we were excited to understand better was the role of the nor norepinephrine system in terms of neuropsychiatric symptoms of Alzheimer's. So, you know, of course, Alzheimer's presents with cognitive deficits and memory deficits. Um, and there's a, most likely that locus realis norepinephrine system is important for those. Um, but it also, in many cases, people with Alzheimer's have other types of behavioral symptoms. For instance, apathy, um, mood disorders, uh, mood changes, and even psychotic symptoms like uh, reality distortion, paranoia, um, impulse control problems. So there's been a fair amount of research linking those symptoms to these changes in the norepinephrine system. So we thought this was an opportunity to understand that better as well by using this imaging method. Um, and yeah, some of these types of neuro neuropsychiatric symptoms have been uh, able to be treated with drugs that um, lower norepinephrine system function. So even though the norepinephrine system's dying in Alzheimer's, if you, it seems a bit counterintuitive, but we know that it's also hyperactive. So drugs that are dampening the system despite it being damaged can actually help in some, some cases. So now I'll talk a little bit more about how we use this neuromelanin MRI to look at the locus ceruleus. So similar to the substantia nigra, we see the high contrast in the structure. Um, so I'm on slide 35 now. And here, this kind of computer-generated image shows results from a cell counting study that's kind of like the ground truth of what the locus ceruleus looks like. And you see it's kind of like a rod-shaped structure. So in a cross-section, it's very small. So to image it, we had to, you know, it's challenging to image it and to analyze the images when the structure you're looking at is very small. But we developed a special method to do that. Um, 
as you can see, also the locus realis, you can see it in the cut specimen as a kind of dark blob. So on slide 36, we talk about the human locus realis imaging we're doing. So um, you can see again that this, the bright signal there by the fourth ventricle um, where the locus realis is, and then in Alzheimer's disease, the signal is greatly reduced in many cases. Um, so for our study here, we, our objective was to understand, to determine the extent of locus realis loss in Alzheimer's disease, like where and when is the signal lost in vivo? Um, because, you know, I said it's lost after the tau accumulation, but, you know, when exactly in the course of the illness? Um, and what part of the structure, when I said where, like, is all the structure affected, all the locus realis, um, or only some parts of it more affected than others? And in general, it was also a, a good opportunity for me using this method, developing a new method to look at the locus realis um, with neuromelanin imaging. You know, before we tried to apply it to more novel um, situations like in psychiatry, for instance, we wanted to see if it worked in Alzheimer's disease where we know we have a very strong hypothesis of what to expect to see. And other groups have already done um, some work in this area. So it kind of served to help us develop our method a bit too. So, and the other thing we were especially interested in, like I said, to understand this relationship between the locus realis signal and these neuropsychiatric symptoms. And we thought that, you know, they would be positively related. So either people with high or preserved um, locus realis signal um, would have um, worse neuropsychiatric symptoms. So in this case, I was collaborating with um, a group at McGill University. So I was very lucky to work with them. So at the McGill University Research Center for Studying Aids and Aging, um, they have an ongoing, very large study um, of people with Alzheimer's disease, but also across the whole spectrum of Alzheimer's from um, healthy aging to people with mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's at different severity. Although they don't have a lot of people with very severe Alzheimer's. Um, but their data set has a lot of great data in it. They have a lot of clinical characterization of these people, um, different neuropsychiatric uh, or uh, neuropsychological measures, and a lot of imaging measures as well. So everybody in this data set has not only MRI with neuromelanin MRI and other types, but also tau and amyloid PET imaging. So everybody has two PET scans with the different tracers. Um, and then they have other markers as well, but we won't talk too much about that. So um, just looking a bit more at this sample on slide 41. So um, it's a large sample. There's uh, almost 200 people. We had 28 people with a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's, 44 with mild cognitive impairment. Um, but in the end, there's a movement in Alzheimer's research not to use the clinical diagnosis anymore because now we understand the illness well enough to know really what the bio biological definition of the illness is. So we, for most of the study, we broke people based on whether or not they had tau um, in their brain. So we divided people into tau positive cases. So there's a few people who were considered cognitively normal, healthy older adults, but they did have tau in their brain. So it hadn't manifested into any symptoms yet. And then the proportion was much higher in people with mild cognitive impairment and almost all the people with Alzheimer's had 
were tau positive by this at this threshold. So that's how we looked at these people. Um, so now going to slide 42. Um, so a lot of the work I was doing was developing a, a way to measure this signal in this very small structure um, from these neuromelanin images. And other groups had done similar work, but I, um, I wanted to try to find a way to do it pretty much automated. You know, we double check and look over the results, but it's an automated pipeline. Um, and it can kind of capture the bright locus ceruleus signal, um, but in a flexible way so that we don't, you know, miss it some of the time. When it's so small, if you use the usual approach in MRI, where you take a mask in standardized space and just apply that mask on an image, um, if it's a very precise mask, it may miss a very small structure like this. If it's if it's inaccurate by one voxel, you could miss the whole structure. So we came up with a method where we can look at the images in on the raw, unprocessed, undistorted image. Um, so we kind of create this search space in the standardized space, then we carry that search space to the native space, um, and then within the search space we find a bright cluster of voxels that we call the locus ceruleus. And we do that across the whole extent of the locus ceruleus because even though it's small, it's rod-shaped, so we can divide it along the rostrocaudal axis. So we can get not just a single measure of the locus ceruleus, but five measures. Um, so we have kind of the top, middle, middle, bottom. So um, we can have some sense of if different parts of the structure are more implicated in certain aspects, like in severity of Alzheimer's or relationships to neuropsychiatric symptoms. So it's an automated pipeline. We made a couple of corrections manually when we found it wasn't working right. Sometimes there's artifacts on the images that can affect it. Um, and we also did manual segmentation, which was quite laborious, but it gave us an opportunity to compare our automated method. We found that they had very good agreement. So it's a much, you know, much less labor intensive, potentially more practical and um, could be used in clinical settings. Um, and more objective also than a manual method of finding this structure. So moving on to the results. So now I'm on slide 44. Um, so the first question we wanted to just think about how the locus ceruleus signal was affected in Alzheimer's. So we looked at people who um, were considered tau positive. That's our definition of Alzheimer's. Um, and we looked at tau not in the whole brain, but in this particular region of interest, which on slide 44 is this red region of interest in the temporal cortex, um, which is where tau starts uh, spreading in Alzheimer's. And the, especially the entorhinal cortex. Um, so if we define people who had a certain level of tau in there as tau positive, we compare those tau positive people to tau negative people, we found that there is a great uh, reduction in the locus ceruleus signal in the tau uh, positive people. That's if we just look at the whole locus ceruleus, average the whole structure together. But then if we break it into these pieces, so we have five pieces on the left, five on the right, and we have this kind of color code. So this is kind of a schematic of the locus ceruleus on slide 45. Um, we see that the darker blue is the places where there's greater loss of signal. So we found that the very middle of the locus ceruleus and the 
and the section just below it had significant signal loss. The section above it was close, so there's probably loss happening there. The ends of it, um, the rostral and caudal ends, didn't have significant loss. There, that's kind of a noisier place to measure, so I'm not surprised it didn't come up significant. So it was interesting if we compare, because here we saw the middle of the locus realis had the greatest signal loss. If we look at um, data from cell counting studies on slide 46, so previous work where they looked at the amount of cells that die in Alzheimer's from uh, locus ceruleus tissue, they found that it was the in the middle of the locus ceruleus where there's the greatest loss. So here the x-axis is the cell count and the y-axis is the distance from the top to the bottom of the LC. And the two curves, the curve on the right is healthy, pe people who died without Alzheimer's, and the curve on the left is people with Alzheimer's. You see that this kind of blue arrow is showing the amount of loss of neurons, and that loss is happening in the middle of the LC, which is where we saw the greatest signal loss. So it kind of confirms that our method is capturing something that makes biological sense in terms of what we know about Alzheimer's. And then the next question is, when in the course of the illness is this loss of signal happening? So, and presumably the loss of the locus earlier cells, um, so if you see on slide 47, the um, subplot F shows on the x-axis the BRAC stage, which is kind of the progress of Alzheimer's um, from stage 1 to 6. Um, and the y-axis is this signal um, in that red encircled part of the locus ceruleus where it's most affected. So it looks like there's kind of a steady loss of signal as people progress in Alzheimer's disease. Um, but one thing that, you know, I was intrigued about, and I didn't talk about too much, a little bit in the paper, um, but, you know, it's part of the reason I did this whole setup about how, you know, this neuromelanin imaging is probably not just measuring degeneration. So if you look at this subplot F, it looks a bit like the, cell, the signal goes down sharply from BRAC stage 0 to BRAC stage 1. And then it kind of looks like it's going up from one to th stage one to three, and then it drops sharply from three to six. So why would it have this little rebound there? And, you know, maybe it's just noise in the data. It was statistically significant if we put, you know, a cubic fit onto that. that um, but it could be that, you know, it may be related to some of those compensatory processes that are happening. So when the cells start dying, then they start getting hyperactive could lead to increased neuromelanin or other changes in the cells that is increasing the signal in a kind of transient way in the intermediate stages of Alzheimer's. And then it starts, you know, then the, maybe the cell loss overwhelms that and then it just goes down precipitously from there on. Anyway, but if you just fit a simple linear fit, you see a gradual decline of the signal as people progress through the illness. And then on slide 48, you see that similar to that, um, if you look at not BRAC stage, but severity in terms of cognitive impairment or overall dementia severity, in both cases, people with worse symptoms or severity have lower signal in the locus ceruleus in that mid-caudal section that's encircled in red there. So all that data kind of fell together pretty nicely to confirm that, you know, signals lost as we expect in Alzheimer's disease. It seems to be lost gradually over time. 
especially in the middle of the locus ceruleus, and you know gets more lost as people get sicker. Um, I'm going to skip that. So slide 50, then we talk about how um, this signal in the locus ceruleus co correlates to severity of neuropsychiatric symptoms in Alzheimer's. So we had a hypothesis, even though it's kind of counterintuitive, the signal is decreasing in Alzheimer's. We thought that it would be related to positively related to worse neuropsychiatric symptoms. And that's what we found. So that that's consistent with other work too, using different types of measures of, of the locus ceruleus norepinephrine system, that people with higher signal have or people with higher norepinephrine system function have worse neuropsychiatric symptoms. So in the scatter plot here, that's what we see that the y-axis, or no, um, sorry, let's go to slide 51 and we can see that more easily. Sorry, slide 50 is showing that that is independent of other changes that are happening in the brain in people with Alzheimer's. So that's um, in this table here on slide 50. It's showing that, you know, it's not the trouble with studying Alzheimer's is everything is changing at the same time. And if you just look at one measure, you don't know if that measure is really, you know, one biological measure is related to a clinical problem because probably the people who have worse or more advanced um, degeneration or change in that biological measure have worse on all the other biological measures also. So it's a, interesting to see if you know, the biological measure is independently related to um, a clinical measure, independent of other biological changes in the brain. And that's what we found, that the LC signal was predicting severity of neuropsychiatric symptoms, independent of the accumulation of tau, independent of the accumulation of amyloid, and independent of loss of gray matter in the cortex. So that's what, and you know, putting all that stuff together, we were predict, able to predict the severity of neuropsychiatric symptoms pretty well. So on back onto slide 51, if we look at just the scatter plot of the LC signal um, and relating that again, the LC signal in the mid caudal section, um, relating that to the severity of neuropsychiatric symptoms on the y-axis, we saw, you know, that they're positively related. And it was especially true if we, you know, at first we were just looking at overall severity of neuropsychiatric symptoms, combining all the types together. But if we break them down, we saw the subdomain that was really most affected um, was what they call impulse discontrol. So that's like a aggressive and agitated behavior. So people with those kind of symptoms had relatively brighter um, signal in the locus ceruleus. So it could suggest that, you know, if your locus ceruleus is preserved, um, that's a good thing. It might, you know, protect you against some cognitive decline might mean you're not as advanced in Alzheimer's, but it can also be a bad thing because it might mean you're more at risk of neuropsychiatric symptoms. So if you have other symptoms, other changes in your brain, other, you know, aspects of neurodegeneration happening in Alzheimer's, but your locus ceruleus is preserved, maybe there's some kind of imbalance where, um, you know, it can lead to neuropsychiatric symptoms. On the other hand, it could be something about hyperactivity of the locus ceruleus that's being captured here um, and that hyperactivity is what's driving the symptoms so either it's preservation or it's hyperactivity the hyperactivity interpretations may be a bit more controversial because that's a, assuming that 
you know, that hyperactivity could lead to brighter signal. Um, so that's my take on that finding. Um, I, I thought I'd just mention this briefly on slide 52. We also had a quick look at the substantia nigra in terms of neuropsychiatric symptoms. This wasn't in the paper, but, um, you know, we always get, when you collect these images, you can always look at both structures. And certainly the dopamine system is relevant for different types of neuropsychiatric symptoms. Um, and we found that if we included that also into the model with all the other brain predictors, both um, the substantia nigra and the locus ceruleus were independently predicting severity of uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms. And the substantia nigra was more related to what they call emotional dysregulation, which is um, more like depression and anxiety symptoms. So when you had lower signal there, worse symptoms. So um, I'm going to summarize the findings of this paper. So we found the locus ceruleus is gradually lost in Alzheimer's disease, presumably due to degeneration. The extent of the signal loss is correlated with Alzheimer's disease severity, including BRAC stage. But the preservation of the LC in Alzheimer's disease can also be harmful because we found that the LC signal was positively correlated to neuropsychiatric symptoms, especially impulse discontrol. Um, so, in general, you know, it suggests that this MRI can interrogate the role of the catecholamine systems in human studies of understanding mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology, and maybe it could have a promise in more of a clinical context as a biomarker of risk for neuropsychiatric symptoms or even risk for Alzheimer's. So, um, I guess we're getting... I had a couple more slides about how we've used the method in PCSD to look at the locus ceruleus in a non-neurodegenerative condition. Um, I guess I can go over that. It's only a couple of slides. Um, so here, um, we were kind of curious. So we, you know, in our previous work looking at the dopamine system, we had looked at it in Parkinson's disease as a measure of, you know, neurodegeneration of the substantia nigra. We looked at it in schizophrenia in a context where there's not neurodegeneration, but where there would likely be hyperactivity of the dopamine system. And so we wanted to see, you know, in that case, how the method could be used in neurodegeneration or in non-neurodegeneration, uh, like psychiatric conditions. So similarly in PTSD, we thought that could be kind of like how we looked in the dopamine system in schizophrenia, but the locus ceruleus, um, could be similarly relevant in PTSD because um, the locus ceruleus is really important in regulating arousal. And one of the most important symptoms of PTSD in many people is hyperarousal, which is like kind of being always on alert even long after any real threat has passed. So um, we, you know, there's evidence that the locus ceruleus can be hyperactive in PTSD. Um, and other studies have used this locus ceruleus imaging in context of anxiety or autonomic disorders, or, um, showing that it, there's a relationship there. So we wanted to see if indeed that the locus ceruleus um, signal was higher in people with PTSD and if it was related to the severity of their hyperarousal symptoms. So we did this in a population of military veterans with PTSD. So we had here 32 Canadian Armed Forces veterans who had served in Afghanistan. Um, we had 19 match controls 
everybody did the neuromelanin session, um, and then we did clinical assessment for PTSD symptoms and depression. We did the same method to look at the locus ceruleus signal. Because of the way the images were acquired, we couldn't break it into five pieces, only three pieces here. Um, and we found in this case that it was in the caudal LC, the bottom of it, where we saw a positive relationship, that brighter signal there was related to worse, uh, worse hyperarousal symptoms. Um, in this case, we controlled for depression severity also because there's been evidence that people with depression have lower um, LC signal using this method. So, and depression is often comorbid in PTSD. Also, if we looked at just the group effects, we found that people with PTSD had significantly higher, quite a bit higher signal in some cases compared to healthy controls. Um, so it suggests that, you know, the locus realis may be hyperactive in PTSD um, and may be related to some of these symptoms patients have. So on to the final summary. Um, Neuromelanin MRI can be used to assay integrity of catecholamine nuclei in neurodegenerative illness, so like the substantia nigra in Parkinson's, locus ceruleus in Alzheimer's. It also appears to measure aspects of catecholamine function in the absence of neurodegeneration. So we looked at the substantia nigra in psychotic illness, the locus ceruleus in PTSD. Um, and, you know, the method can be used, has a lot of promise to be used in mechanistic studies to understand better, you know, human um, brain function, and also as a clinical biomarker. So we have been working with the company to try to bring this to the clinic to get approval to use it um, in different conditions um, as a marker of potentially, ultimately as a marker of um, illness or that could predict diagnosis or treatment response. So that's it. So I have some acknowledgments for my crew, but i um, happy to take any questions or discuss anything. Thank you so much, Cliff, um, for this, you know, amazing presentation that you went over so, so, so much um, interesting uh, data. It's, uh, it's very impressive work. Um, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, when I read this, like the, the, the PTSD data is, is really interesting too, that the hyperexcitability um, mm -hmm. marker is, seems to be really significant and quite important. Did you have, um, like how soon when PTSD, so usually we say PTSD starts around like clinically uh, around one year, I think after trauma, if it still persists, like, mm -hmm have maybe patients before you're looking into um you know patients to diagnose it earlier on and maybe prevent it from you mm -hmm. know planning on doing that maybe yeah that's an interesting thought i mean you know if if this signal is caused the way we think by neuromelanin accumulation then it may take some time for enough change to happen to be detectable. Um, but we don't know. We don't know how much time that might be. So it could be that, it, you know, it might be detectable before symptoms. That's a good thought. Um, yeah. Like the yeah. people in our, our study, you know, they 
Canada left Afghanistan, I don't know how long, over 10 years ago, maybe, or close to 10 years ago. So they've all been, you know, living with PTSD for many years. Um, so, in, yeah, these people, we don't know how long this has been present, but that would be a really interesting question. You know, is it, when does it show up and how long does it persist? Like, is it there forever for your whole life, even if you get better? Like that's based on what we, if it's really due to neuromelanin, you'd expect it's sort of like, kind of like a scar or something that, you know, it's just a permanent record, even if you get better because the accumulations happen and it's still there. Yeah, it's interesting because we see, especially with PTSD, um, even if you do a lot of treatment, you have the spontaneous um, reoccurrence of PTSD or this traumatic um, uh, memories, even, you know, I can, mm -hmm. it's very common if you're stressed out again, but there's mm -hmm. spontaneous recovery, even if you did a lot of extinction training. Yeah. So, yeah, that, and then it would be also interesting to see data before they got PTSD, if there's some kind of mm -hmm. disposition, because that would be amazing to screen for, for example, for soldiers. Mm -hmm. Don't send them if they already, you know, right. have kind of a hyperactive, a little bit more active. Yeah, that would be so cool. I mean, it'd be obviously challenging study to do, but you never know. Maybe, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully not, because that would mean there's people being exposed to war again or something. But if, you know, if you could get people before a likely exposure to traumatic event, you could do that kind of a study. Well, another group that would be interesting um, would be police officers and mm -hmm. firemen. Like firemen have a very yeah. of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they we've talked about that. The start um, to become firemen and then... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be, you know, a long, long-term study, but definitely one that would be cool to do. Yeah, we're doing more work on this to understand it better, like um, doing a larger study and relating it to um, different things, like like we're doing um, fear conditioning in PTSD. So um, through that, you get a kind of a physiological measure of arousal, um, like skin conductance response and um, different um, functional changes in the brain while they're learning, like fear learning. Um, so yeah, we're hoping to dig into it better to see what's going on yeah so the only interesting thing that would maybe speak at least partially against it being completely predisposition is that um, the, the high occurrence of um, PTSD in firemen uh, because I did a language um, data study you know a while ago and compared this different police firemen um, abuse in childhood all of these different groups Mm -hmm. The thing is, in the language data, one of the highest indicators were use of uh, pronouns. Like if you use I a lot, you know, it's lo it's known for a while, then you're like more uh, likely to be depressed and have all these mm -hmm. PTSD and stuff. And then if you use we and stuff a lot, then you're kind of a little bit protected, even in Holocaust survivors and so on. We kind mm. of saw that. So then I talk with uh, soldiers and they go to this, through this training where they kind of erase I. Like during that okay. 
never supposed to say me you're always or i you always mm -hmm. ask like you're always supposed to see yourself not as yourself anymore as a group mm -hmm. and i kind of thought that it might have this protective that firemen don't go through and that's why ptsd is way higher in firemen so hmm. it would be cool to do that study and then also collect language data because it's really cool actually <laughs> it's, it's yeah that's interesting so you do you think that like because soldiers go through this kind of training to become like a collective unit and you know i don't know bond together maybe in a higher level than firefighters do that could be protected yeah like uh when we look to huge data sets from interviews holocaust survivors like i did the resilience study afterwards mm -hmm. That was the most significant part that in uh, people that um, kind of always saw, like they always talk, uh, talked about we went through this and were the people that kind of had then a kind of regular life. Not that they never had issues again, like, mm -hmm. but um, had the family, you know, jobs and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You look mm -hmm. at the reports when they talked about the trauma and everything, they always talked about we went through this we it happened this happened to us mm -hmm. and it's a big it's a huge difference like it's the most significant one actually mm -hmm. and all the other word categories that's why then then the soldier told me yeah we go through this training and we get trained away to see us like separate mm -hmm. group you, yeah yeah so. mm. anyways it, Thing. I want to open up <laughs> the questions to other people too. Please flash your microphones, everyone. And yeah, Serena. It's really fascinating talk, um, and particularly that uh, for the, the neuromelanin accumulation as a marker of just, uh, you know, sort of uh, overactivity. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I've been interested in looking at um, glial and specifically astrocyte involvement. I'm wondering, uh, is, you know, have you looked at that and is it, is this accumulation uh, in part due to a failure of clearance um, by the astrocytes or, um, I don't know if, if, if you've looked at that. Well, um, you know, it's, it's all happening in the cytosol. So I certainly wouldn't rule out that they could impact that, but, um, I guess it would be a, a little bit further removed, maybe. In, in in reading many of the pathologies that you covered, I mm -hmm. um, I see there's you know uh, astrocyte involvement, and you know I'm still sort of puzzling through that. Um, is there? Uh, but but here here your your study was quite focused on the locus aureus and um, the uh, this the signal of the accumulation of the neuromelanin. Um, that even predated the tau accumulation. Was that correct? Well, um, I don't know. I, well, in terms of the locus ceruleus, the idea is that it's accumulating tau, you know, early, relatively early, like 20s or 30s of age. Um, mm -hmm. But the yeah, the neuromelanin, it should be detectable in the early years of life. You know, um, in humans, like four or five years old, there's um, some detectable levels. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and it's not actually there in, in other species, like um, it's there in primates and some other, you know, large mammals, but 
Um, it's not there in rodents or very little, like really oh, old rodents might have a little bit, but um, mm. yeah. So one factor that, you know, it makes you wonder what that's about. Like, anyways, you know, for instance, the, the VTA doesn't have much neuromelanin. So that's why it's kind of a notorious, notoriously hard structure to see, um, whereas the substantia nigra is black and you can see it, um, mm -hmm. but they're both dopamine neurons. And the, the reason for that is most likely because the, v, uh, the VMAT expression is higher in the, in the VTA. So they're clearing the, neuro, the dopamine faster and sucking mm -hmm. it out of the cytosol. So mm -hmm. it can't, much of it doesn't stick around long enough to make neuromelanin. But that makes you wonder why isn't it, why isn't that happening in the Nigra? You know, if this is a dangerous process, this biology somehow has decided to run that risk. There must be some advantage to, to having, having neuromelanin floating around longer. I don't know why. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, um, is it the, um, is the neuromelanin, is it just in neurons or is it in other, other cells within the brain as well? Yeah, I, I don't know if there may be some small amount of it that floats around. I don't know. I mean, I, I would expect most of it's in neurons and and mostly in, you know, the catecholamine neurons. Mm -hmm. The levels elsewhere. Right? Yeah, that, that would make sense. It's it's in essence a metabolic prod, product, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it gets wrapped up in these granules right away. So I don't know that it... I don't know how much of it gets out elsewhere. Well, it's a fascinating angle, and it certainly presented as, as a, a fairly reliable signal for these pathologies. Yeah, I mean, we know it's useful. Like, that's the good news. I mean, the bad news is we don't understand a lot of the mechanisms, like the physics of it as well. There's a camp out there that says maybe it's not neuromelanin. Um, and, you know, it's true that we don't understand well why neuromelanin would cause these you know, signal changes. Um, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that it is neuromelanin, or at least one of the factors contributing to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, I think it's really promising. I think it's going to be useful, no question. But there's still a lot to learn. Well, thank you. Thanks. Who would uh, like to go next? Exactly. Uh, Dr. Olu, Kyle, you joined the stage. Uh, go ahead. Um, doctor, did you want to go first? Sure. Um, I, sorry, I joined a little bit late, but I was wondering if um, there are any studies looking at changes um, in the MRI marker in association with uh, medication treatment, especially in the psychiatric uh, populations that you've looked at, like the ones with PTSD or um, mm -hmm. other disorders? Yeah, I mean, there's no definitive evidence, but we, we've, we I, th I think there may be a study that looked at antipsychotics or antidepressants. Um, one study we're involved in was in late life depression, um, and we saw relationships to some um, symptoms of uh, psychomotor slowing. But what was even maybe more interesting in that paper, some of the people were given um, L-DOPA as a treatment for late life depression. And, um, it's, and we found a significant effect that the L-DOPA treatment increased the signal. So that again is kind of confirming neuromelanin having a role, 
although I guess something else could have changed it too. But, you know, we know that a drug like that will boost the catecholamine levels in, in the brain, in the neurons, and that will lead to increased neuromelanin formation. You know, maybe it was surprising that even a short treatment had a statistically uh, significant increase, but that's the best example, I think, of a treatment changing the signal and in a way that made sense, too. Yeah, that's very cool to hear. Was this um, with Brett, uh, Brett Rutherford? Sure was. You know him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a friend of mine. So <laughs> Okay. Very cool. Thank yeah. you. Well, you both are very cool as far as I reckon. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the basic and tonic patterns um, of the locus coriolis, <laughs> however you pronounce it. And, um, and, and I guess that's like a, um, a tonic or burst. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I'm just kind of curious about that as, as it relates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's any real data, like how different types of activity patterns would lead to neuromelanin formation or not? Is that sort of what you're driving at? Uh, just in this specific generally. Uh, region, just uh, specific to the region in the brain, um, generally like um, how that works, I, I guess. So just looking for some information, whatever comes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about the electro, you know, the, firing patterns in the locus coeruleus. Um, so yeah, I know a bit about the dopamine system, but I, I can't assume it's the same there. Uh, okay, um, the reason why I ask is because of the norepinephrine and the arousal attention mm -hmm. states and behavior modulation. Um, and then I kind of think about um, factors such as like use stress, agency, growth, um attention awareness mm -hmm. um, even how we learn um yeah. kind of also like a little bit of a metacognition um mm -hmm. so the reason why i'm asking why it's firing is because i've always been interested in this tiny blue spot in the brain and yeah. um you you're the first person i've heard speak about it on clubhouse so thank you very much okay. um, amazing presentation uh greatly appreciated yeah thanks yeah that there's a you know it's a pretty hot part of the brain these days. There's a ton of work and, you know, used to feel like it was kind of like the sec poor sister of dopamine or something or, um, but I feel like there's a, a lot of, you know, exciting work going on and people just really focusing on the locus coeruleus and norepinephrine system. And, you know, it seems it's relevant for so many things. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to learn for sure. Thank you so much. And I, I really appreciated your um, empathy uh, well, during your presentation. I just thought that I should mention that. And um, yeah, I'll stop talking, but uh, yeah. I appreciate um, yeah, thanks. your time I... and energy on this very much. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, first, thanks for the talk. I was, when you were discussing the advantage perhaps of uh, one of these processes, I it, what came to mind was uh, rheumatic sequestration. So it could be an emergency sequestration measure, measure mm -hmm. for some sort of pathogen or, you know, the yeah. beginnings of it. 
Yeah, I think so. You're asking how how does this neuromelanin getting cleared or? Well, you were you had mentioned if I didn't hear you wrong um, that it could be um, like what is the advantage of neuromelanin? Right, was the, was the question you brought up, and I thought that it yeah. could be an emergency sequestration measure. Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, that our, my colleague in Italy who we've been working on with all this stuff. He's kind of like the neuromelanin guru of the world. Like he's devoted his whole career to it. And, you know, a lot of his work kind of poses that question. Like, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And the answer is, you know, it can be good. It can be bad. Depends on different things. And it's certainly serving a function when it's there. Um, you know, one function, it, it, it does mop up a lot of stuff. It binds metals. That's part of probably why it could affect MR signals. Um, mm -hmm and it binds other toxins and it just so you know these granules are kind of full of a lot of bad stuff um so if they ever get broken that's bad news for this this tissues so like via concussion or something perhaps yeah or yeah or whatever is happening in alzheimer's and parkinson's that's leading to some cells getting damaged can kind of spiral right then once damaged it releases that and that can harm adjacent cells fascinating um, I imagine there might be lead found in those sometime. Yeah, I would imagine I should ask my colleague. There was a, there was a study out of London that was, had done necroscopy on multi-center. It was multi-continental even, and they were able to find, um, some implication for that in similar process as Alzheimer's. But I was curious how, um, how easy it is to run and NM MRI. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I think I forgot to talk about that. Like that's one of the most um, biggest assets of this method is, you know, there's different ways of doing it, but there's at least some ways that are really easy. You can do just out of the box. Like, uh, you know, it takes usually seven to 10 minutes um, and it doesn't require any special contrast agents. Um, you know, it's just a standard sequence. You have to pair it with a anatomical scan to use it to best effect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really easy. Um, and so it could be done on any scanner, um, and has a lot of potential for clinical, you know, it's easy enough to be done in a standardized way in a clinic without some expert needing to be involved. And we don't need to deploy any new equipment. This is available yeah. technology that's deployed already. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a version, one of the ways of doing the sequence, you might need a developer sequence. So, but it's debatable whether that version's even that much better. <laughs> Very cool. Really appreciate your answers. Thank you so much. I'm going to pass the mic to whoever would like to flash the mic next. All right. Thanks for your question. So, so just a quick point. It's really just the impression that I've gotten. Um, uh, but melanins in general, and presumably uh, the polymers of uh, uh, dopamine and norepinephrine, um, those are oxidative uh, or can be oxidative polymerization mm -hmm. products. So uh, yeah. I, I inferred that this was either a response to or a, a, um, a mitigation mechanism for uh, oxidative stress. Yeah, exactly. Uh, possibly yeah. both. Yeah, yeah, that's... Probably, you know, that's the most obvious purpose. I mean, whether it serves other purposes, 
but yeah, it's like there's, I guess, what's this, quinones or something that get created from dopamine when they're oxidized, and those are very bad chemicals, so they eventually turn to neuromelanin, get packaged up, and yeah. Eli, did you have any further questions? Otherwise, uh, just, just that comment, though, though I'll add like a, just an interesting little tidbit. Apparently, um, the melanin in fungi lets them utilize energy from gamma radiation. Oh, wow. Fascinating. They also synthesize vitamin D via the same pathway that exists in humans. Um, but <laughs> but uh, who would... Katarina, did you have a question, or do we want to go to Victoria or Jamie? Who would like to go next? Yeah, I was about to ask uh, if Jamie had a question. Um... I think he's away from from the phone, maybe. Um, yeah. There we go. Oh. <laughs> Hiya. I'm here. Um, Doctor, thank you for an incredible talk here. You covered a lot of ground. Um, I suppose my question is a largely general one, because as I said, you made a lot of uh, discoveries and observations here. And I'm wondering, um, has, has everything you've discovered so far led to you finding more questions that need to be answered or do you think as well that these the this work you're doing is helping to fill in a lot of the gaps we're having with uh, everything from being able to predict mental illness to possible treatments or on even understanding alzheimer's or are we do are we still have a long way to go yeah i mean certainly you know the more you more questions you ask the more or more questions you address, the more questions arise. Um, and, you know, so even if you do answer some questions, um, it doesn't mean new ones don't spring up. Like, for instance, you know, we could be using it to understand the brain, or we could be using it to help treat people. So if you're just using it to treat people, the good thing is you don't need to know why it works. You know, it just, if it, if you see it's related to something, you know, signal predicts whether you respond to drug a or drug b that's great you know you can exploit it but you know to understand what is happening in the brain yeah it, it helps um but then there's always more questions arise you know like i for instance in this study i'm doing across the lifespan in healthy people which is very interesting to me i kind of wonder if the rest of the world's going to be as excited about it but um we, you know, we are collecting, actually, there's two versions of so-called so neuromelanin imaging, two sequences that aren't even that similar, but the experts say that they have the same special sauce that, you know, makes them basically measuring the same thing, even though the sequences are different. And they seem to be in good agreement if you look at, you know, the signal across all the participants in the study with sequence A or sequence B. But, you know, if you look a little closer, they aren't always in agreement. And... You know, one version is, seems to be picking on, up on something a little different, but then it's kind of scary to bring that to the world because then it's like, you know, you're raising a lot of questions and, you know, it kind of might even undermine some of the work you already did. So it's like the closer you look at something, the more complicated it always seems to get. Short answer. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for this incredible work that you are doing. Um, this is incredibly good for humanity as a whole. And I really appreciate your efforts here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the kind words. 
I, I did have a follow-up question. And um, there was a previous speaker that went through some developmental studies. Mm -hmm. And it was about um, a balance of, of pruning synapses with uh, through the microglia at, at critical development stages. Right. And, um, you know, the 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 general picture was that the uh, and this was done in mice but um the you know the mice are born with too many and they have to prune to a certain balance for appropriate level of sensitivity mm -hmm. uh, and if you inhibit that pruning they're 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 more anxious so they're uh, less resilient and um, i'm wondering because you mentioned that certainly in the alzheimer's cases that uh, there's a movement to you know you, you can identify the biomarkers um, but I'm curious in, in, in this case for, for uh, variations within the population that, that um, do have anxiety issues, um, do, do they, uh, do they ha have a more pronounced signal with the neuromelanin? Mm -hmm. I mean, is yeah. there a way to identify them in a sense? Yeah, I mean, all these things, you know, there's your, your sensitivity and specificity is not going to be perfect. Um, if you look at group averages, there's been um, one or two studies showing that people with anxiety symptoms have higher higher signal on the locus ceruleus, um, and that's I guess PTSD, you know, anxiety like too, um, and we saw that. So, so yeah, there there, there could be um, things happening with anxiety. I mean, I'm really interested in the developmental question too. Like I said, for that healthy lifespan study, mostly I was interested in the younger people, um, especially for, for instance, the dopamine system. You know, we know there's so many dopamine disorders, um, and you know, many of them have a developmental aspect. Um, and so I was kind of curious. Maybe we'll see some kind of clue that you know the signal is supposed to be accumulating gradually as people are you know growing up from children to adults, but Maybe there's certain critical periods when it's changing in a different way. Like maybe it's certain kind of flat and then it spikes up at sharper rate. Like for instance, during puberty or something, or maybe there's changes that happen, you know, in, in later adolescence, which is when people get schizophrenia. Um, and the dopamine system, like, you know, I'm intrigued to find those kind of clues and we'll look at certain symptoms of, you know, even though they're healthy people, we'll look at you know, low-level psychopathology of different types, including, you know, substance use, um, low-level psychotic experiences, and um, just general psychopathology and uh, ADHD-type symptoms, too. Good evening, Clifford. This is Amy. I have a question. Hi. Yeah. This is just a general question because I came in late in the room, and I don't know if you've already discussed it. Um, based on the function of the neuromelanin, is it something that can be chemically induced to assist uh, when it's decreasing in level? Well, I don't know that it would be useful to add more neuromelanin. There's even people who think it's risky to have a lot of it and that, that the neuromelanin itself, like high accumulation that happens late in life could be a risk factor for some disorders. Some people dispute that. Um, but in any case, I don't know that, you know, it may be helpful be in certain circumstances to have some neuromelanin. Like it's, like I said, it could be absorbing some toxins. Um, but I don't know if anyone's ever speculated that 
low levels would be a risk factor and that that kind of intervention could be helpful. Uh, was there ever a study uh, based on, you know, how uh, black people have more melanin? Is there a mm -hmm. study that there's a, an increase or a decrease in uh, different races? Is there yeah, one? That, that's actually been something that people have kind of raised as a, a thought or a possibility. And I don't know that it's ever been adequately addressed. Um, I don't know that there is a strong a priori reason to think that. Like my colleague, who's the neuromelanin guru, says that that's a non-starter, that the, the melanin in your skin has nothing to do with the neuromelanin in your brain. I don't know if he's right. I mean, until you look, I guess you don't know. And it, you know, for instance, in my study in healthy people, we want to look, you know, part of the reason for the study is if this is going to be used clinically, we have to understand what is the baseline, like what is the normal level of neuromelanin for a certain person and what factors influence it. We know that age is a huge influence on it. We see even sex has an influence. We don't understand it well enough yet. When we have more people, we'll, we'll look at it more carefully. Um, but yeah, race could be another thing or ethnicity, uh, you know, different factors that could impact the signal. And we would like to get to the bottom of that. So uh, as you get older, do you have an increase or decrease of neuromelanin? Well, I you just should want have, to make sure I understand. Yeah, yeah, it should increase progressively, but you know, it depends how you measure it. There should be more in each each neuron as you age, but then, you know, at some point when you get older, you start losing some neurons. So, you know, the total amount might start decreasing a little bit because even though individual neurons are gaining more, there are some neurons dying, and at some point, the balance may turn to a, a net loss of neuromelanin. So can you explain to me again, how does L-DOPA play a role on this? Yeah, so, you know, chemicals that are similar to dopamine or norepinephrine, these catecholamines, um, they can get eventually converted to neuromelanin. So something like L-DOPA, you know, is one of those types of chemicals. So, you know, if you give it to someone as a drug, um, most likely it would increase neuromelanin formation. And, you know, it's been shown in some, not in the most direct way, but there's indirect evidence certainly that that's going to happen. And whether that's a bad thing, I, it may not really matter. I don't know if it would have a, a, any effect on a person's health if they have a, a slightly increased neuromelanin accumulation rate. Because I know that L-DOPA is used for Parkinson's. So mm -hmm. uh, for Alzheimer's, is that something that they're trying to use already? To I, don't, I don't believe so. I, no? You know, okay. the dopamine system seems pretty preserved in Alzheimer's, surprisingly. I mean, not, you know, when you get sick enough, it'll start to be affected too, but it's not one of the first things to go there. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we've been going over an hour and a half, and so I wanted to give you the opportunity to um, basically get some. Okay. Okay. Well, I could take a couple. If there's more questions, I could talk okay. a little bit longer. Okay. Yeah. Does anyone uh, has more questions for um, Dr. Cassidy? Right now. I I am curious about these. Um, 
uh, studies involving regular sampling of uh, you know groups of individuals' lives and uh, different um, and looking back at the effect of you know whether they went through something traumatic, had a really bad year, mm-hmm. other types of things, whether that spikes or you know really follows, is it really an indicator of you know in essence uh, just how how much total activity there's there's been. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that. Yeah, well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Please. Well, you mentioned you were um, involved in a study of, of healthy people. Uh, are there other are these types of. Uh, um, do you, you call those longitudinal studies? Yeah, that in this case, it is Yeah, longitudinal study. Um, yeah, so we would like to look at that, you know, like right now when I talk about I'm just these are cross-sectional studies looking at age, you know, seeing that older people have more neuromelanin. But if you look within subjects, you'll get more information, right? To see how one person changes over time. Um, And that would be pretty exciting, especially, you know, if you look at adults, maybe the rate of accumulation is lower and it may be noisy, but especially the young people, when they're accumulating at a high rate, they're probably, you could see a lot of change in signal relative to the noise and maybe more subtle variations are detectable and maybe related to life experiences, you know, we'll see if any of this pans out, but, you know, I, we're interested in looking at like, you know, for instance, in the dopamine system, people are sensitive, the dopamine system's sensitive to social success, right? Like people with high socioeconomic status tend to have higher dopamine levels and monkeys that move up or down the hierarchy, their dopamine is supposed to shift. Um, so like, you know, we'll look at kids that have a big social network. Are they accumulating neuromelanin at a higher rate? Um, if they're just maybe more generally just having a rich life experience, um, for instance, we look at like in engagement in different activities, you know, sports or music or whatever. Does that, you know, affect it versus kids that are just sitting on the screen all day while you're looking at screen time too? You know, is that understimulation or overstimulation. There's a lot of talk out there in the media about, you know, screen time being bad for kids, for instance, but there's no data. Like people say, oh, screens are hacking your dopamine system, but you can't study the dopamine system in kids. So it's just talk, you know, so hopefully we'll see something, some clues. Yeah, I have, um, I have a couple of questions, uh, if that's okay. Um, yeah. So one is, since neuromelanin seems to be increasing with age, um, does it correlate with like um, methylation and epigenetic changes? And could that uh, be kind of a way to uh, control neuromelanin if it's kind of a causation and not just, you know, a mm-hmm. Is there any study or thought and analyzing that yeah i mean i don't i don't know i mean we we we're collecting dna in that study and we're getting collaborators to help because that's not my area of expertise um so but i don't know that you that the accumulation with age is a bad thing like you know there's that school that says it might be but you know i don't know that we have enough i think we're far away from confidence enough confidence to say that you know we should intervene to stop it because for most people it doesn't seem to be that bad you know like a lot of people live to be a hundred and they have a ton of neuromelanin 
and it you know doesn't seem to be causing that much harm and so it must be if it is bad for you it must be an interaction with some other factor that you know makes it bad would be my yeah. guess I was thinking that maybe, you know, there are some epigenetic changes that cause, you know, causes and then you could detect mm -hmm. that also instead of just imaging. Yeah, I think it would be really cool to look at it with epigenetics and my colleagues that were looking at that, but I, isn't blood better than saliva for epigenetics? Well, saliva would be easier, right? Um, so yeah, well, that's the thing. We're collecting saliva, but I know there's some things that saliva is not good enough for. I anyway. mean, many people go, I was also thinking of going to saliva because, you know, it would just be, you know, less kind of a hassle. Yeah, no, that's that's why we're using saliva and not blood, especially with children in the study and stuff. We don't want to scare anyone off. It's already hard to get those people. Um, but I just, I don't, I know that there's some limitations that even if it's easy, it's, you know, sometimes not as powerful. And I know that there's some, I read about the study that is looking at neuromelanin in the periphery, like in the peripheral neurons and hmm. not sure if exactly the same, but could it also correlate, um, and be also like a easy accessible way of looking at new melanin um, increase there too? Or do you think it's very, you know, it's it has to be in these specific brain regions? Yeah, I don't know about how it would be acting in the periphery. I mean, I guess maybe it's the same pathways that are generating it from catecholamines in other parts of the body. Um, but I would imagine the levels would be low. Yeah, interesting. No, I always just think of, you know, cheap scaling ways of maybe, you know, population that don't have access to imaging. And stuff oh, like yeah. That. Yeah, maybe you could capture some of the same processes. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe in the eye, you know, there was, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure, there was the, recent study that looked at um, retina and they could kind of um, see neurodegeneration um, in the retina mm -hmm. at the early diag diagnosis. Yeah. I don't know about that, but they do have, um, you know, there's a way of doing sonography of the substantia nigra. I don't know how it works, but, um, you know, they've, I know there's been studies and it actually is useful for some applications so that would be cheaper i guess but maybe not as a uh, high quality measure in the end i'm not sure yeah well interesting and again thank you so much for coming and answering all of our questions and giving us such a um, amazing uh, talk about your research um, i learned a lot and um yeah, I hope. And thank you, everyone, for coming, asking great questions. Um, I see that um, Brandon and Kyle, they shared a lot in the chat. Thank you for that. And um, yeah, I hope maybe you'll come back one day with some research updates. Okay. Um, we wanted also to plan in the future to have like, 
like an expert maybe a like roundtable discussion with guest speakers that came and kind of overlap in their sure. research, maybe and yeah. Uh, yeah i hope you enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it was great yeah thanks so much for inviting me it was really fun and yeah i'm gonna stay in in touch and uh check out some of the other talks right amy is using the the um, the new feature of um you know clapping and um <laughs> like emotions i'll do that now too <laughs> okay thank okay. you and uh, have a good night enjoy your um holidays like uh going yeah. back um and will do thank you everyone um yeah follow the club if you like um this type of discussion we'll have tomorrow dr folk from germany joining us and talking about brain signal pathways that control intake and um then we'll have dr Campisi talking about CD8 T cells that can um, maybe characterize ALS. And uh, yeah, we'll have uh, many more talks um, that will be really interesting. Um, Dr. Liao, um, he will talk about deep sea virus, his deep sea virus discovery and um, how it can explains a little bit more of about the origins of complex life. So um, yeah, join us again and I hope to hear you all soon. And thank you, Cliff, again. It was a great honor and um, enjoy the rest of your summer. <laughs> okay. okay, thanks again. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you much. Very much. Thanks, enjoy, your, enjoy your time. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. Bye, everyone. Good night. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone. <laughs>